Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Master the NEC, where we talk about the National Electrical Code and all things electrically related. My name is Paul Abernathy, your host for the show. In uh, today's podcast, we're going to talk specifically about one article, and there's sometimes some confusion about it, and people ask questions about it all the time, so I figured we'll cover it. And it should take place in less than an hour, so buckle up. Uh, it might take us an hour to get through this. Uh, but we're going to talk about metal wireways today. We're talking about Article 376. Uh, a lot of people ask me questions about it, uh, how to size wireways, and all those type of things. So I figure, what better than to have an episode dedicated just to uh, 376? Of course... A lot of times on some exams, this is a good article for them to ask things about calculations or ampacity of conductors and whatnot. And there's a slight difference between metal wireways and non-metallic wireways because you do get a break on some adjustment factors. That's the number of current carrying conductors that are in a metal wireway versus those in a non-metallic wireway. So you get some advantages, uh, and we'll talk about that obviously as we cover it. So we're going to try to cover the entire article. We're going to move through it pretty quick. Most of you know that I talk very fast, so uh, remember you can always pause these episodes at any time, get your code book, look through it, catch up to me, and then come back to the article because again, uh, sometimes my episodes are an hour long, sometimes longer than that, but you can pause them at any time, so keep that in mind. All right, first things first, Article 376 uh, is dealing with metal wireways. But we also want to know that it's it's broken down into three parts. Part one, part two, part three. So part one is the general requirements. Uh, part two is an installation requirements. And of course, part three is construction specifications and uh, gives you some guidance if you're manufacturing that. Um, one thing to remember up front is that not all wireways are required to be listed. If they're going to be in a wet location, then they would be listed for that wet location. If they're uh, allowed to be used in certain applications, like where the code permits them to be used in, say, a hazardous location, uh, because that article's uh, specifically permit it, uh, most notably 501, 502, 504, for example, then, then they might have to be listed for their specific application. So just kind of keep that in mind. They, they're not required to be listed unless they're for a certain condition of use that may uh, require a listing to take place. Okay. Uh, does that mean that the guy down the street, the sheet metal guy, if he can follow all the rules in Part 3 to construct it and can provide all of the protection, corrosion protection and all that that you would afford it depending on their location and where it's going to be installed, then nothing stops them from doing that. Uh, they can easily create dimensional type of metal wireways to use for your installation application. Um, but if there's a specific rule that needs to be applied to listing, and we'll see that here in a second, and the use is permitted, uh, then just make sure that they actually construct it in accordance with Part 3 and meet all those requirements. Okay, Part 1 general is talking about uh, 376.1. We're dealing with the scope. Uh, and it says, this article covers the use, installation, and construction specifications for wire, uh, metal wireways and the associated fittings. Maybe interconnected couplings that might connect different wireways together. All those type of things. Uh, we're going to deal with that here uh, in Article 376. Now, we do have a definition of what a metal wireway is. Obviously, it's only in dot two here. So, it's not in Article 100. It is in dot two, and so it gives us specific instructions on what a metal wireway is, or I guess a definition of what a metal wireway is. It says it's a sheet metal 
trough with hinged or removable covers, okay, for housing and protecting electrical wires and cables, and in which conductors are laid in place after the raceways have been installed as a complete system. Okay, so everything's been installed. Uh, and now you can lay cables or conductors inside of it. It has a hinged cover or a removable cover. Many times it has screws. They're obviously blunt, head, uh, blunt tipped screws so it doesn't damage any of the conductors inside. Uh, they're usually machine thread. And you have all this uh, application. And you can remove that cover so I can get access to the wiring inside. Because that's what a metal wireway is. Uh, the next thing that we want to look at is the part two so that's you know that's pretty quick for part one uh, part two deals with the installation and installation deals with uses permitted uses not permitted uh, and then we get into some conductors in parallel it's a new section it was added to the 2017 code which we'll talk about in a second and of course we deal with conductors and impacity so that's the bulk of of part two uh, and of course some deflection and bending applications that fall under it as well and of course supporting and whatnot so that's the part two so let's kind of cover part two Uses permitted. Where can I use a metal wireway? Well, I can use it in exposed work. Obviously, we see them all the time mounted on the side of the wall. I can actually use them in hazardous locations, classified locations, uh, as long as it's permitted with the, within those articles, uh, like 501, 502, 504, you know, where they make reference to a metal wireway. Uh, and they do give you the different types of wireway, um, uh, wiring methods that are allowed to be used in those hazardous classified locations. Uh, remembering that a metal wireway is under chapter three, so it is a wiring method. All right. Uh, one of the other uses permitted is that I can use a metal wireway in a wet location. But again, it goes on to say in 376.10 item three that in wet locations where wireways are listed for the purpose. So there's a requirement where the wireway has to be listed uh, and because it's going to be located in a wet location. Okay, so that's an example of where listing might come in. Whereas generally, we don't see a dot .6 here, which is new for the 2017 code, which has to do with listing requirements. Um, wireways aren't necessarily required to be listed, except for when they're used for a specific purpose. And then you would have potentially listings that are associated with that. Uh, 376.10 under uses permitted, item number four, says that I can install a metal wireway in concealed spaces as an extension that passes... Uh, that passes trans, um, transversely through walls. If the length passing through the actual wall is unbroken, there's no joint in there, okay? And then it also says it is also have to have access to the conductors um, uh, at both sides of the wall, on either side, okay? And so I would want to do it in a way where I have a cover that goes through it and I can't remove the cover because of being in the middle of the wall. These would be access to each side of it that allows me to get to the wire that's in there. All right. So those are uses permitted. But then, of course, as always, we're going to have some uses not permitted under 376.12. Incidentally, if you're new to the code, you know that .10 throughout the code is a uses permitted, uh, most notably in Chapter 3. And of course, dot 12 is going to be uses not permitted. So we give you some guidance there. There's only two conditions here or two items under uh, 376.12 for uses not permitted for metal wireways. The one is where they're subject to severe physical damage. Now we have a condition called severe physical damage. We have a condition called physical damage. Neither one of them are defined in the National Electrical Code. It was There was an attempt within the public input stage of not only the 17 code, but as well as the 2020 code in order to try to get a definition of what physical damage was or even what severe physical damage was. Uh, that was unsuccessful, at least to this point. 
So, again, physical damage is one thing. Severe physical damage is another thing. Uh, I will stay away from my opinions. Uh, but severe physical damage to me is a situation where something's installed in a location where it's uh, imminent. That physical damage is imminently going to take place. Uh, if I notice an area where I'm installing this metal wireway, and every single piece of equipment here seems to be protected by uh, bollards, uh, that might send a clue that we got some uh, cowboy who's in a, a forklift who runs all over the place. And of course, that means my metal wireway is potentially in imminent dan danger, and that would be a severe physical damage location, in my opinion. All right, so again. There is no definition of it. You have to use your better judgment. Item number two says we're subject to severe corrosive conditions. So we have what's called corrosive conditions, and we've made an attempt to try to define that uh, under the um, uh, 2020 process that will be coming out in dealing in uh, Article 680 for pools, hot tubs, spas, and that type of thing. Uh, but I believe personally, even though I helped craft it, I still think it falls short because we need to have some clarification to what's considered a corrosive environment. Um, but anyway, that's some guidance maybe that'll come out in the 2020. Uh, at this point, the definition of corrosive environment is a pretty loose and moving target. Um, so if we have to have something that's considered severe corrosive environment, uh, then that's even more of a moving target. Here's the only guidance I'll give you on that is, for example, EMT, uh, that is a steel uh, tubing system, generally is protected against corrosion resistance. You can go look at that under Steel Tubing Institute, uh, and you can look that up, and you'll see that, you know, yes, EMT, steel EMT has galvanization or zinc uh, is sacrificial. Uh, it's okay to be installed in a corrosive environment, maybe in the ground or, or even in concrete that's in contact with the earth. However, if there's an application where a, cirros, uh, a severe corrosive condition exists, then you have to add something additional like a, a protective coating, uh, a protective wrap, or something like that. And that might be depending on where you're at, what the location you're at, whether it's a severely corrosive condition because of the atmospheric condition that you're locating this metal wireway in, uh, then you might have to add something different. But most of the metal wireways that are steel with the galvanized or zinc coatings uh, do have corrosion resistance and they're okay in a certain application as long as it's not a severe corrosion environment and then you might have to do something additional. But what this is saying right here is it is not allowed, period, to be in a severe corrosive environment. Whereas the other rules for the wiring methods like a EMT, you can add something to it. Here it's just telling you flat out it's not to be installed in a severe corrosive environment. So really understanding the two uh, and then also understanding that the physical protection or the, yeah, the physical damage rule is also saying that it is not to be permitted where it's subject to severe physical damage. So keep those things in mind and how you interpret this. The next one is 376.20 deals with conductors connected in parallel. This is a new item or a new section for Article 376. Now, this has to do with a condition that takes place with inductive reactants uh, and heating and different situations where you're separating the conductors out and the impedance gets higher and the current flow gets restricted and it can create heat. Insulation could melt down. It could cause problems in the magnetic field. All these things can take place. So what we're trying to do here is say, look, if you've got a parallel set of conductors and you're installing them in a metal wire way. The rule says 
were single conductor cables comprising each phase, neutral or grounded conductor of an alternating current circuit are connected in parallel, and that is permitted by 31010H of the NEC. It says the conductors shall be installed in groups consisting of not more than one conductor per phase, neutral or grounded conductor, to prevent current imbalance, uh, which I mean, can affect the cancellation, uh, which can ultimately cause problems with a, a, a neutral conductor if it's done improperly. Uh, but anyway, this is to prevent the imbalance in the parallel conductors due to the inductive reactance that takes place. Now, here's what we're really saying. If I've got two sets of say of a three, 350 Casey mill and I'm running parallel two sets, I've got an A, let's just say I got an ABC and a granite conductor, and then I have another ABC and a granite conductor. So inside of this metal wireway, I want to make sure that I group phase A, B, B, and C and the granite conductor of the first set together, and then I have A, B, and C and the granite conductor of the second set grouped together. What I don't want is to inadvertently have an A, B, C, and an A grouped together in close proximity, okay? Because that can cause inductive reactance in the B and C of the other cable because it doesn't have the A in there in order to have this, this cancellation. And there's a rules in the code that require us to run these circuits uh, in a way that can reduce the issues of inductive reactance and inductive heating, okay? So anyway, that's the rules that you have for paralleling. And you just want to make sure that you keep those sets together as you run them through this metal wireway. Okay. So that is new for the 2017 National Electrical Code. And I kind of paraphrased it a little bit and covered the top of it. Uh, uh, but it's a neat prospect that you can go read 310.10H and some of the informational notes and things like that uh, to give you some more guidance on that. Uh, 376.21 is the size of conductors. It says no conductor larger than that in which the wireway is designed shall be installed in any wireway. Uh, this kind of pushes us back to the manufacturer. And of course, the manufacturers uh, construct um, these wireways, those that do construct it, usually under the guidance of a UL standard. That's one of the things that they'll use. And for example, one of the UL standards that they will use is UL 870. And there's a table in there called Table 7.1. And what that is, it's saying, look, you have different types of wireways, whether it's a 3x3, 4x4, 4x6, 6x6, whatever it is. We're going to tell you the maximum size conductor or cable that can be placed inside of that wireway. Now, that doesn't mean I can have other ones smaller than this, but I can't have any larger than this. Otherwise, I'm going to have to bump you up to a higher uh, wireway or a larger wireway. And so that is something that if it's a listed product, which again, they're not all required to be listed, but if it is listed and it comes with installation instructions, then there will probably be some guidance on that. Otherwise, there is the UL standard 870 with this table that gives some guidance. Now, the code is actually saying this, all right, here in uh, uh, 376.21. It's actually saying that, that I can't have a conductor larger than which the, the wireway is actually designed for. Uh, but since they're not required to be listed in all cases, uh, you might get a sheet metal guy who can meet all the requirements of, of part three for the construction, but doesn't really know the other aspects of, of 870. Hopefully they do if they're constructing it, okay? But there's those things that come into play. Here, all we're saying here, and this is, I'll say it once and, and we'll leave it here, is that when you get a wireway, typically they're going to be made when you buy them standardized sizes by a manufacturer who's probably going to have some type of guidance, whether it's from their website or whatever, 
and they're going to tell you potentially, based on that UL870, table 7.1, any largest, any largest conductor that can be inside of that wireway. And remember that because that's what 376.21 is referencing. Okay. Now, if you don't have that guidance, don't worry because we at least have the NEC here to follow and we're going to talk about a certain type of percentage that you can't exceed. Okay, So I'm just wanting to make you aware of that's what 376.21 is talking about because there are some wireways that will limit you to the size of conductor that can be in that wireway. And you have to take that into account. All right, And you might have to compare the two. You might have to compare, if the manufacturer does give you some guidance here, you might have to compare the difference uh, between the sizing of 376.21 based on the manufacturer's conductor maximum uh, versus the 20% fill that we're going to talk about in 376.22. All right, so let's talk about that while we're here. 376.22 is dealing with the number of conductors and ampacity. So I'm putting these conductors in a wireway. Uh, one of the key things that are different than a metal wireway versus a non-metallic wireway is that we'll have some applications where we're going to apply some adjustment factors, uh, and you get some, you get a kind of a break when it comes to dealing with the number of current carrying conductors in a metal wireway, as whereas a non-metallic wireway under Article 378, you don't get that break. Okay, so you still have to apply the rules in 31015B3A when it comes to the number of current carrying conductors, and that can dramatically reduce the amount of current that that conductor can carry uh, based on the number of current carrying conductors that are in that actual wireway. So there is an advantage to the metal wireway. Okay, so we're going to look at it here. It says the number of conductors or cables uh, and their ampacity shall comply with 376.22A and B. Uh, one noticeable change here in the 2017 code is the word, or uh, I guess the two words, or cables was added to 376.22. Even though we saw the definition of a metal wireway did refer to cables, uh, it really wasn't in here and it caused probably some confusion because it says number of conductors and ampacity, but then it kind of talked about conductors but really didn't say anything about a cable, and cable are utilized inside of uh, metal wireways all the time. So we have to take that into account. So they added the OR cables in here in the 2017 code for clarity. Uh, next, they're looking at there's an A and a B as we alluded to. And the first one, which is subsection A, says cross-sectional area of wireways. Probably the most important component you're going to deal with when you're sizing that wireway. And it is, it says this sum of the cross-sectional areas of all contained conductors and cables at any cross-section of the wireway shall not exceed 20% of the interior cross-section area of that wireway. All right, so let's understand it. If I take a loaf of bread and I've got, I know this is going to sound funny, i got wires running through my loaf of bread and I want to have me a slice of good old French toast type of bread, uh, the slices of French Texas toast. So I cut me a cross-sectional area right down through it and the wires that are going through that can exceed at any given space in there, that, that actual cross-sectional area cannot exceed more than 20% of that cross-sectional area. Okay, So we don't want to exceed the 20%. Now don't worry, we're going to give an example at the end to kind of help you kind of cement this all together. But that 20% that I can't exceed of the overall cross-sectional area of that wireway, wherever those wires come through there, uh, is a big deal. Uh, and so we don't want to exceed it. So you have that 20% limitation. Now, what about if I'm running, obviously, a number of these conductors through or even cables through, 
And now I've got a certain amount of current carrying conductors. So that takes us to 376.22b. It's called an adjustment factors. And it says the adjustment factors in 310.15b3a uh, shall be applied only where the number of current carrying conductors, including neutral conductors, classified as current carrying under provisions of 310.15b5. That's important because you need to know whether or not your neutral is actually considered current carrying. And if you look at 310.15b5, you're going to see all the conditions that are going to apply to determine whether or not that neutral is to be counted in this uh, subsection here that we're dealing with. All right, so now it says... And in 31015B3A, again, is dealing with the number of current carrying conductors, all right, that you exceed three, all right? So let's keep on. It says, uh, and let me read it again so that you can cement it home, but then I'll kind of just flow into the rule here. It says, the adjustment factors in 31015B3A shall be applied only where the number of current carrying conductors, including neutral conductors that are classified as current carryings under the provision of 31015B5, exceed 30 at any cross-section of the wireway, okay? So it's any cross-section of wireway. So there's a point where we have a grouping of conductors going through this wireway. I can literally take a snapshot of that cross-sectional area, the depth and the height, and do my calculation to come up with that cross-sectional area. And you're gonna see how we're gonna do this here in a second. And, uh, well, not a second, a little later. And you're gonna make sure that if you don't have more than 30 current carrying conductors, then you don't have to worry about any additional adjustments or anything like that. Now, don't forget, if you've listened to any of our podcasts before or my videos, you still might have what's called an ambient correction based on the ambient temperature in this area. But you don't necessarily have to do an adjustment okay, based on the number of current carrying conductors as long as you don't exceed 30 through that any cross-sectional area of that wireway. Critical. So you've got a limitation to the 20% fill, and you've got a, indeed a limitation of that 30 current carrying conductors. Because the moment that you go to 31 current carrying conductors, then the requirements of 31015B3A kick in, and 31 conductors are going to require you to reduce the potential of that conductor by up down to 40%. So you have a, a huge jump that can affect the current carrying ability of those conductors once you exceed 30. So engineers, designers, uh, really take into account. The good news is you really, it's, it's tough in the, it, to any portion or any area of the wireway to exceed the 30 if you do a little thinking about your design. Uh, but I have seen some that people just cram everything in there and it's totally, totally possible. All right. So just keep that in mind uh, in your application. Now, it says conductors for signaling circuits, most notably things that you would see in 725, or control conductors between motors that you would see applicable in uh, 430, uh, dealing with starters and things like that. And it says, and used for only for starting duty, shall not be considered as current carrying. So these are very limited conductors. They're used for the starting or the start process for motors, for starters, or controllers, or even signaling applications. You're not going to count those as current carrying conductors, so don't worry. They're not going to go in your account of those maximum of 30 current carrying conductors. Uh, can I have more than 30 in there? Most certainly. But when I do, the, the current carrying ability of that conductor is going to be drastically reduced, uh, and that's going to end up kicking up your conductor sizes in order to get the same current that you need to do the job. So very important to think about your design here.
All right, next we're going to talk about 376.23. This is dealing with insulated conductors. So when I have the conductors that are insulated, uh, then we have to be very concerned about the potential damage to this integrity of the insulation. So I have an A and a B here, and I have to meet A and B if both apply. Now, that doesn't mean that maybe A only applies and B doesn't apply. I have to meet them both, obviously, if they apply. And there is no or in there. It says you have to comply with 376.23 A and B. So if A applies only, you apply A. If B and A apply, you apply them both. And I'll show you how that works. All right, now, the first one is A, and it says deflecting insulated conductors. It says where insulated conductors are deflected within a metal wireway, either at the end or where con conduits, fittings, and other cable uh, raceways or cables enter or leave the metal wireway, or where the direction of the wireway itself is deflected greater than 30 degrees. Okay, maybe it turns a right angle, a 90 or something. That's obviously greater than 30 degrees. You have to maintain the dimensions corresponding to the one wire per terminal in table 312.6A shall apply. Now 310, uh, excuse me, 312.6A is dealing with a spacing requirement dealing with equipment. So you have to have a certain amount of space uh, and that's what we're going to deal with when we're dealing with the wireway to make sure that it maintains this certain amount of space uh, as you deal with deflections and things like that. Okay, so I actually do another podcast and another video on 312.6 A and B. Uh, B dealing with the terminal applications and then A dealing with the actual space inside of the equipment. Um, you'll see that there are these rules uh, really easy to follow. We're just trying to make sure we have enough space okay, to do that. So the dimensions that we're dealing with based on the deflection may bring in table 312.6 A. All right, just keeping that in mind when in your design. All right, now it also goes on to B and says, well, what's B mean? Now, B says metal wireways used as pull boxes. So let's look at it this way. If I have a metal wireway that's simply got 12 gauge, 10 gauge, 14 gauge, you know, 6 gauge, 8 gauge, things like that in there, then I'm really just transitioning from one raceway to another through this, uh, this box. And, you know, I've got all these rules for fill that I have to maintain as well and everything. However, when I deal with conductors that are four gauge and larger, I've got to do something else. And what that is saying, you remember the rules for the straight and angle pulls that are found in 314.28? In other words, if it's a straight pull, you're going to deal with eight times the largest raceway, okay, dealing with a straight through pull. And when you're dealing with an angle pull, it's six times the largest raceway plus the sum of the raceways that are in that same row. And so you've got these rules for angle pulls and things that you've got to be aware of. That's a six times. And then, of course, you got the straight pull, which is the eight times rule. All this is saying is, look, it's a metal wireway, but you are using it as a pull box as well. And if you're doing that, this is a dimension that has to be maintained. So I could have the trade size coming in one side, and I have to do, if it's a straight pull going in one side and straight out the other side with these conductors, then I'm going to have to maintain that dimension that's going to be at least eight times for the straight. And of course, you have the rules for the uh, six times for the angles. And again, you can refer back to the code references that they give you, which is 314.28A1 for straight or 314.28A2 for angles and follow those rules accordingly. 
All right. It also reminds you that if I'm dealing with a cable, like an MC cable, I have to convert it over to what it would be as a raceway. So I look at all the conductors that are inside that MC cable, for example, and determine with those same conductors what size raceway would I need in order to be able to determine the size of the raceway in order to be able to apply this rule here when it comes to the uh, eight times or six times and whatnot. And it's the same thing that it says back in 314.28 as well. So nothing's changed there. They call it transposing cables and turning them into what it would be if it was a raceway. Okay, So just remember that if we're dealing with four gauge and larger and you're going to use it as a pull box, uh, that... Uh, you meet all these requirements for the dimensional requirements. And that could mean that a box is much larger than what would be required and not exceeding more than the 20% fill. So there's all these components that you have to think about. Look, man, electrical work is not easy. Engineers have to really think these things through. Uh, electricians have to really think about what's going on. If an engineer misses something, it can happen. The electrician needs to have the wherewithal to be able to identify this and be able to do these type of things in the field. The electrical inspector needs to be able to be another set of eyes who can look at it. And the real good electrical inspectors can easily identify these problems with a real quick little jotting down on their notepad. They can come up with it, what we're dealing with here. But really, this is something that needs to be thought of during the design stage of your application. All right, so let's move on to 376.30, securing and supporting. Uh, metal wireways shall be supported in accordance with 376.30 A and B. Now, A and B are dealing with supporting components, A dealing with a horizontal type of supporting requirement, and B is dealing with a vertical supporting requirement. Now let's talk about the horizontal, running horizontally across the wall here. It says wireways shall be supported or run horizontally uh, at each end and at intervals not to exceed five feet. Okay, that's your first rule. Uh, reminding you also that wireways do come in other various lengths, okay? Wireways do come in in uh, one foot sections, two foot sections, three foot, four foot, five foot, and even ten foot sections. Okay, so keep that in mind uh, when you're looking at this rule. But it states the very general part of that states that the wireway horizontally goes is going to be supported at each end, and then it's going to make sure that you're supporting at intervals that are not exceeding five feet. Then it has an or, and the or says well. For individual lengths that are longer than five feet, and we talked about it could be as far as 10 feet, it says for those individual lengths that are longer than five feet, I want you to secure it, uh, support it at each end or at each joint, unless it's listed for other supporting intervals by the manufacturer, if it is actually a listed wireway. Okay, so the manufacturer might give you directions for supporting it uh, based on their rules. They might add more supports. It goes on at the end of this and says, okay, whichever rule applies here, I just want to remind you that it, it, the distance between supports is not going to exceed 10 feet. Okay, so manufacturer might give you some information and then a code might say it's not the, the intervals are not going to exceed 10 feet, then you're going to go with the more restrictive here, but you generally would follow the manufacturer's instructions unless, of course, here it is more restrictive. Uh, in no case shall it exceed 10 feet between supports. So you've got the rule for, for the individual. And the general rule is supporting horizontally at each end of these wireways and every five feet. Uh, and then, of course, if you have segments that are longer than five feet, you're going to secure it uh, or support it, I should say, at each end or at each joint. And the intervals could be longer 
if the manufacturer tells you to do that, maybe they say do it every six feet, okay, then that's the manufacturer's. But at no point can the supports be more than 10 feet apart, okay? So that's your horizontal supporting requirement. Now, what about vertically, straight up and down? Very common to see metal wireways used in shafts and, and used in other applications like elevator shaft things. So, okay, so vertical runs. So it says here in the code under 376.30b, it says vertical runs of wireways shall be securely supported at intervals not exceeding 15 feet and shall not have more than one joint between supports. Okay, so I can't have more than one joint uh, or coupling, if you will, between the two sections. Um, one more uh, than that, okay, in that 15 foot span. It's, so it says vertical runs of, of wireways shall be securely supported at intervals not to exceed 15 feet. And again, I can't have more than one joint between those supports. Uh, it says adjoining wireway sections shall be securely fastened together providing a, to provide a rigid joint. Okay, So uh, you can have that one joint between these sections running vertically, but it has to be securely fashioned and it has to be rigid at the joint. All right. Uh, next, let's move on to splices, taps, and power distribution blocks. So 376.56 deals with splices, taps, and power distribution. Now, A, it comes into A and B here. You know, A is dealing with splices and taps. It says splices and taps shall be permitted within a wireway, provided they are accessible. Obviously, it's got a hinge and removable cover. They can be accessible. It says the conductors, including the splices and taps, shall not fill the wireway to more than 75% of its area at that point. Now what that means is, obviously I got splices, obviously I've got taps, they're gonna be bigger, obviously they have a bigger area than the individual conductor. So I take that area that's dealing with the splice or the tap, and that's total area that I'm dealing with. That means if it's a, type or, a tap or splice that's three inches long because of the tape and the splice and everything, then I have to take that whole area there, that whole dimension, and that can not exceed 75% uh, of that actual wireway. In other words, everywhere else where it's just wires can't exceed 20%. However, for splices and taps, I can go up to 75%. I can't exceed that value for that given area. Okay, So that's how you're going to look at it that way. So it's whatever the footprint is of that tap or splice, that cumulative area cannot exceed 75% of the area of that uh, internal area of that wire metal wireway okay next so yes you can have taps in there yes you can have splices in there um, B subsection B is dealing with power distribution blocks first things first is talking about the installation of these blocks it says power distribution blocks installed in metal wireways shall be listed. So whether the wireway needs to be listed or not, unless it's for a specific use, the power distribution blocks have to be listed for their use. Okay. It goes on to say that power distribution blocks uh, installed on the line side of service equipment shall be marked, quote, suitable for use on the line side of service equipment, unquote. And it says or equivalent. Well, the or equivalent might also say something like suitable for use on the supply side of service equipment. That's kind of an equivalency statement to what this is. Uh, if you don't know what power distribution blocks are, that is allowing you to potentially uh, tap off uh, maybe one set of conductors. You come in and you're able to tap off. Uh, a lot of people use those in these metal wireways under the allowances 
in uh, 215, whereas you can have uh, the conductors from a breaker up to this wireway utilizes if you have continuous loads, you size these conductors based on 125% of the continuous load and 100% of the non-continuous load. But once you get to this power distribution block and they're now feeders, let's say, and they go further away and they end at another power distribution block that's say 100 feet away, then you only have for the conductors that are part of, that are in between those power blocks, that feeder that's in between it, then those you only have to size the conductors based on 100% of the continuous and 100% of the non-continuous. And that's an exception that is afforded you under 215.3, I believe. All right, so uh, that is just an allowance for you to do that, okay? Actually, I'm actually having a, a, a senior moment. It's actually 215.2, one of the exceptions under that, that allows you to do that feeder application. Uh, when you're doing the conductor sizing, that's why I forgot it's it's 215.2. All right, so uh, that's beneficial, and that was actually a change in the 2017 code for that as well, which can really benefit engineers. Um, it was there in a previous cycle, but the exception was placed wrong. So because it wasn't after the actual statement in the code that it was necessary, that you couldn't really use it, but now in the 2017 code, that's there. I, that's really irrelevant to what we're talking about. We're just kind of talking about what these these blocks actually are, uh, and they allow you to actually come into it and distribute out the actual conductors. It's a common, uh, easy place to make these uh, pressure connector type of applications, okay? All right, let's move on. So we have an item two to subsection B of 376.56, and that's dealing with the size of the enclosure. So here we are now, we're getting to a size requirement again. We, we thought we could just do the 20%. Then we thought we had to worry about the largest conductor that could be in there based on the manufacturer's maximum size conductor that are permitted in there. Uh, then we got into this issue where what if it's being used as a pull box and the conductors are four gauge and larger, then I gotta worry about sizing. Well, here we have something else. If we're gonna put power distribution blocks in there, then we have another rule here, and it says, size of enclosures. It said, in addition to the wiring space requirements in 376.56a, and that's what that 75% was for the for these splices and taps, because essentially that's what this power distribution block is doing. It's a tap or splice. It says, the power distribution blocks shall be installed in the wire in the wireway with dimensions not smaller then specified in the installation instruction of the power distribution block. So the manufacturers of these listed power distribution blocks are going to give you some dimensional requirements uh, to be maintained. Now, ultimately, your, your uh, metal wireway might be larger anyway due to the 20% or maybe something to do with the fact that it's being used as a pull box or, or, or because of the splicing rules. Um, it has to be more than 75%. I mean, there might be a rule, there might be something that says it's bigger anyway, but here we have a statement saying, you know, whatever, but the manufacturer is going to tell you that it has to be at least the dimensions and not smaller than given for use with these power distribution blocks. And so you have to break, take all these things into consideration. It's important that you do. All right. Next, we go on to wire bending space. Now, this is a critical one because you got to remember that Equipment that already has terminals in it, that already has uh, the, the design with, with apparatus that's involved in it, are generally going to be designed under the guidance of 312.6 A and B, A being the equipment, uh, B being the termination requirement clearances, uh, A being the opposite wall clearance from the equipment inside um, and all of its components. Uh, but when you're dealing with a metal wireway, it's usually empty. It's nothing in it. 
So where I place those blocks really is critical because if I place it too close to the end, then I'm not going to have the adequate clearance that I need in order to maintain this bend that I need to have. So we give you guidance here. It says, okay, be careful when you put these power distribution blocks in the wireway that you need to maintain a bending spacing at that terminal that meets the compliance with 312.6b. And if you go to 312.6b, you'll see that it, it gives you the rules. And most people use the one terminal rule because these usually aren't done in a parallel format. Uh, but again, it, it could apply whatever number of terminals you have per phase. But in this case right here, we're looking at per terminal. And you need to maintain that clearance from the sidewall. So where you put that distribution power distribution block in there is going to be dictated by 312.6b. And just be familiar with that as well. Okay. Uh, number four, it is called live parts. So power distribution blocks shall not be uh, shall not have uninsulated live parts exposed within a wireway, whether or not the wireway cover is installed. It's irrelevant whether the cover is on or the cover is off. Okay, um, you need to have these power distribution blocks. They're going to have a little protective shield on it so that those lugs that you connect to, those pressure connection lugs, uh, whether they're the set screw type or the Allen wrench type, whatever they were, they're pressure connections. Um, they're gonna, they're still live parts. Okay, everything else might be insulated, but these live parts could be there. So it has to be integral into the actual power distribution block that actually protects those exposed live parts. Um, and again, that's a part of the componentry that's requiring these power distribution blocks to be listed. Because if they're listed, then they're already going to meet these rules and you don't have to worry about it. Um, if I'm an inspector and I'm inspecting this and I notice that that cover's not on there, then we have a problem. Okay, And I'm obviously not going to uh, pass that installation. Okay. And if the listing for these power distribution blocks require an integral component that protects those uh, live parts from being in, coming in contact with it, then I'm going to make sure that's the integrity of that is maintained. Okay. Uh, last item here under subsection B of 376.56 is conductors. It basically says the conductors shall be arranged so that the power distribution blocks terminals are unobstructed following the installation. So. You've got to meet the rules for the bending for 312.6b. Uh, you have to make sure that you have the manufacturer requirements for how much space you have in this, uh, the dimensional wise required for this, this uh, metal wire way. Uh, we have to meet the 20%. All that's great. But now when I install conductors in it, I can't have these conductors in there blocking this power uh, distribution block. Okay, I have to have full access. I have to be able to see it. So people know it's there. I have to be able to not actually have it hidden underneath the conductors. Probably what I see a violation of many times when I get into these metal wireways and especially the sizes they're dealing with. And I'm sure they pay no attention to what the manufacturers might say is the actual maximum size conductor that can be in there anyway as far as overall size. But they're really worried about the 20% because that's what the NEC deals with. So they put these conductors all in there and they block this power distribution block. And of course, we have to fail it in accordance with 376.56B item 5 for that application. Okay. Um, and now we have 376.58. This is called dead ends. This is basically for metal wireways that you would connect together. If you get to the end of the wireway, you have to close off the end. It's kind of like openings, for example, in, in panel boards, the openings, the knockouts, you got to plug them, you got to keep it closed. Well, 
When it comes to a metal wire away, you have to have the end closed as well on a dead end end. Of course, you might have the coupling end, but the dead end end at the end of the wire away has to be closed. That should be a no-brainer, but again, uh, rarely do we uh, see people that uh, really dig into the code really deeply and they potentially could leave the end open, and I don't know why you do that, but you just can't do it. All right, next is 376.70. That's extensions from metal wireways. What are we talking about when we say extensions? Well, let's read it and it becomes very apparent. It says extensions from wireways shall be made with cord pendant installed in accordance with 400.4, that's dealing with cords, or with any wiring method in chapter three that includes a means for equipment grounding. Okay, so chapter three, EMT, for example, it can be used as an equipment ground. Uh, rigid can be used as equipment ground. IMC can be used as equipment ground. So those are chapter three methods that itself, the chapter three method is considered an equipment ground and you make that connection, okay? When it deals with the 400.14, that's a very common application a lot of times in IT facilities where we have these, these banks of servers and they come and they run over top of it and they have a metal wireway and then out of the metal wireway they actually have these cord taps to these pendant type of receptacles that actually will power the different racks of the uh, information technology server systems. That's just one example of it and if you meet the requirements in 400.14 for these pendant cord applications then you can utilize this and this is allowing you to be able to come out of that metal wireway. Okay, So that's what it's talking about. Now it also says, well, you know what? If you use a chapter three wiring method that has a separate equipment grounding conductor and it's employed, then the connections of the equipment grounding conductor in the wiring method have to be connected to the wire way. And that connection has to comply with 250.8, which is gives you a laundry list of different type of acceptable connections uh, in article 250. And then it also says, and in accordance with 250.12. Now, of course, 250.12 is talking about having a clean surface to make sure that I make a good connection. That's what it's talking about, okay? So you got to meet both of those components. Uh, if you want to run, you're using a wiring method, but you're going to end up running uh, any of the Chapter 3 wiring methods, uh, and you're going to run a separate equipment ground, then this is how it's going to actually make that connection over to the, um, the metal wireway, Okay. And lastly, we're going to get into part three, which is construction specifications. Uh, A deals with electrical and mechanical continuity. Again, wireways shall be constructed and installed so that electrical and mechanical continuity of the complete system are assured. Uh, a well-designed metal wireway with proper couplings, proper uh, joint fittings, uh, proper, proper end stops, uh, proper segment connections, proper jumpers where necessary. All of these things are required to maintain not only mechanical continuity, but as well electrical continuity. Obviously, it's a metal enclosure, and that's extremely important, right? All right, so that's got to be maintained, and that doesn't matter whether it's listed or unlisted. For whatever it's used, you still have to maintain that integrity, so whoever's building that uh, metal wireway has to take that in consideration. Probably not that difficult to do, but if I did have a joint component, and it was kind of dicey, then it might not maintain the integrity of multiple sections of wireways that might be going together, and that could be a problem. So it's got to be looked at as a complete system. So usually the same play people that make the metal wireway also makes the, the jointing system, the end stops, and all that in order to maintain that mechanical as well as electrical continuity and ultimately the integrity of the system. Uh, 376.100B which is called substantial construction. What does that mean? Well, it says, look, wireways, you know, again, metal ones are made out of sheet metal. Uh, 
It shall be of substantial construction and shall provide a complete enclosure for all contained conductors. Makes sense. No openings. Complete enclosure. It says all surfaces, both interior and exterior, shall be suitably protected from a corrosion. Now, most of the time, that's a galvanization, a zinc coating, or whatnot, uh, is your general requirement to have that, knowing that you can't install these in a severe corrosive environment, uh, but it does allow you to install it in a corrosive environment, so that protection has to be afforded. Usually, that's zinc-coated or, like I said, galvanized process on these type of metal wireways. meets that uh, requirement. Uh, it also reminds us that the corner joints shall be made up nice and tight, but it doesn't say nice and tight. It just says they shall be made up tight. And it says where the assembly is actually held together by rivets, bolts, or screws, these fasteners have to be configured so that they're not more than 12 inches apart along the entire construction of this metal wireway. So you do have some, some fastener requirements in order to hold this um, uh, box together, this uh, metal wireway together. Okay, so that's your rules here for that. So where it is designed by rivets, bolts, or screws, uh, then those fasteners have to be uh, no more than 12 inches apart as you space them around it. Uh, I have seen these metal wireways actually be formed out of a solid sheet of sheet metal. And of course, then you wouldn't have rivets, bolts, or screws okay, in that application. All right. Uh, the next one is item C, and that is smooth rounded corners. Obviously, all corners, all internal transition points, all uh, where you have metal wireway connecting to another metal wireway, or maybe even we have partitions that are inside of this metal wireway, um, and things like that. In fact, I've actually seen metal wireways that allow you to have a fixed partition, and then you can have feeder conductors and service conductors running through the same wireway because of a partition. Okay, um, it separates the two and creates actually two wireways uh, in, in its design. Uh, but again, if you have a, a, a middle partition, uh, if the conductors pass through a partition, uh, then you want to make sure that all sharp edges, all of the bends, if we have those right angles, or all of those that also exceed 30 degrees, as we talked about for the transition, um, that you actually get rid of all the sharpest. So we want everything to be smooth and rounded edges. So when you're designing it, you want to make sure that takes place. We want to prevent any potential abrasion. We want to maintain the integrity. We don't want to create any potential short circuit or even ground fault conditions in here. Okay. And item D says covers. It just reminds you that the covers shall be securely fastened to the wireway, whether that's by screws, whether it's by hinges with a latch on it, uh, it has to be securely fastened to the wireway. Uh, this is a great example where duct tape is not going to work, folks, so <laughs> you're not going to be able to use duct tape. Uh, and lastly, let's talk about markings. It says that 376.120 markings. It says metal wireways shall be so marked that their manufacturer's name or trademark will be visible after the installation. So when everything's done, everything's buttoned up, I want to be able to see on it who manufactured it, if they have a trademark that's significantly known that can tell me who it is right away, um, like Mallard has their trademark, Duck and Mallard Duck and things like that, or whatever it is, that that's actually on there, then I can see it, that it is visible after the installation uh, so that the inspector can see that, everybody can see that, uh, to tell you who actually manufactured this, okay? Whether it's Johnny's sheet metal shop down the street, or if it's a 
a manufacturer who is well-known and maybe they listed this, this uh, metal wire away for a specific application, like for use in a wet location, then this marking requirement is going to be critical for me to know who the manufacturer was and that needs to be visible after the installation takes place. Okay? All right, so that covers everything that it's dealt in the article. So I figured it would be a great time for me to just cover an example of the type of, of a type of installation and we'll kind of we'll kind of go from there if that makes it a little easy for you so in our example today we're going to try to determine what size of a wireway that we need for a specific condition of installation and in our case we're going to have nine two-aught AWG where we're dealing with copper so it's nine two-aught AWG THW wires and then we're going to also throw in there 12 uh, 12 AWG THWN wires uh, and uh, of course it could also be THWN-2 in our example here we're just going to say THWN for example and we need to find out what is the minimum size wireway that we need to hold these uh, these uh, 9 2 aughts and these uh, 12 um, 12 gauges. Now, clearly, we're not over 30 current current conductors, so we're not even getting into that adjustment factor rule because we have an allowance up to 30 of current current conductors. Okay, and because I'm asking you in this question, we're going to assume that these are all current current conductors at that time, but we still didn't exceed 30. So, if you're taking an exam, it's real important to to dissect these little components. But in our case, we only got nine two aughts and we got 12 12 gauge THWNs. Okay, now. What size do we need? Well, first things first, we're going to do this no different than we do a raceway fill. In other words, we're going to use chapter 9, table 5, in order to find us what the approximate area is for each one of the conductors that we're dealing with. Now, the first ones first, let's do 2 aught, And so we'll go to chapter 9, table 5, and we're going to look for THW. When we find THW, you're going to notice that the approximate area for a um, 2 aught. THW is 0.2624. So we write that down. Now we've got nine of them. So we can already go on and do this. We do go 0.2624, do that times nine, and that's going to give us our overall square inch value of 2.3616. So you write that down. That's your first uh, number you need. The next thing is we got to deal with these 12 gauges. So then we, we're still in chapter nine, table five. We're going to go to find THWN, and incidentally, THWN-2 is in the same, same area. All right, so we find the 12 gauge, and that value as approximate area is 0 0.0133. All right, now we know we've got 12 of them, so we might as well go on and do that now. So we take the 0 0.0133 times 12, and that gives us an overall a square inch value of 0 0.1596. Now that encompasses all of the conductors we're dealing with, okay? We deal with that right now. We've got uh, 21 conductors and we've already done it. So now we add those two together. So you add the 2.3616 with the 0 0.1596, that's gonna give us 2.5212. That is my total wire area. That is physically the amount of area that we're dealing with when it deals with the wires. So that part of the equation, it is done, right? So. At that point, we're good to go. Now, there's two ways we can go from here. One way is we could say, well, okay, that's the total area, and I need to make sure that I don't exceed 20% of 
this metal wire away. So one way to do it is if I took a 4x4 box and started that way. I'm going to show you this way because this is just one way to do it. If you already know the box you want or you're dealing in standard sizes, then let's just go to a 4x4 box because we already know what the area is of the conductors. And we know that we can't exceed 20% of that 4x4 box. So 4x4, you just simply 4 times 4 is 16. So that's 16 square inches. So what we want to do now is take that 16 square inches. And we want to take it and we want to go 16. And when you want to multiply it by 0.2. And that equals 3.2. Now since that is replicating the maximum of the 20% fill within that 4x4 box we can now look at our area of our conductors and it was only 2.5212. So can I put 2.5212 inside and not exceed the 3.2, which is the 20% of the 16 square inch 4x4 metal wire weight? And the answer is obviously yes, we can do that and we're okay. Now if you do the same thing and you say, well, what about if it's a 3x3, I want to try the next size lower, the standardized lower. Well, then you go 3x3, three, three times 3 equals 9. And you do the same thing. 9 multiplied by 0.2 is 1.8. Well, we needed at least 2.5212, and this is now 1.8 is the 20% limitation within this 3x3. Three three. So obviously a 3x3 three three is not going to work. Okay, It's not, not going to work for us. So this tells us that the minimum size that we need for this installation, based on the National Electrical Code, is going to be at least a 4x4 four four inch uh, metal wire weight. Now, doing it the other way, let's say that we already know what our area is, and we do. It's 2.5212. We can now divide that by the 20%, and that's going to give us our square inch value that we can now compare and determine, and we can pick a box by doing that. So let's do that. So it's 2.2, excuse me, 2.5212 divided by 0.2 equals 12.606. So I now need a box, a metal wireway that's going to give me at least 12.606 of square inch area. Okay? So obviously to do that we got to find one that's going to give us that so we can do you know obviously it's easier to do it the other way cuz we could start by known sizes, but we know that it didn't work when it came to the 3x3 because 3x3 is 9. So then we did the 4x4 is 16. 16 exceeds that 12.606, so we know we're okay. And then we can usually check ourselves by again, like we said, doing the 16, and we do multiply it by 0.2, and that's 3.2. And then we look at the conductor's overall area, and we see that we're only at 2.5212, but we could go all the way up to 3.2 square inches before we breached that 20% threshold. Okay, so that's how you do it. That's how you'll size it, and that's how you literally size a metal wire away. Now, let's keep a couple things in mind. UL870 is also again going to give us some guidance from a UL standpoint, and that's to tell us that maybe I can't have a larger conductor in any given wireway than the size that they give in Table 7.1. Now, look, you might not have access to 870. You're going to use the NEC. Most people aren't going to know any different. However, sometimes a manufacturer who was designing this is very clear under UL870. They're very clear about the maximum size of any one conductor that they will allow in their wireway. For example, there are manufacturers out there that say in a 4x4 box, the largest individual conductor that you could put in there is a 4-aught. 
So if my installation had a, for example, had a, a larger than that, say a 250 KC mill, that, that would be a violation. And I'd have to jump up to a wireway that it's going to at least allow me to have a 250 in there. Okay. So obviously, I'm going to compare the two. I'm going to use the 20% and all the other values that we talked about. And I'm going to compare it with the maximum largest conductor size requirement by the manufacturer or based on UL870, which incidentally is a recommendation under the UL870. But the manufacturer can recommend it. And if they put it in their literature or they list the box for some reason, then it becomes part of their 1103B and you have to compare the two. I don't want to get you confused. Because really, most of the time for any exam, you're going to deal with simply the 20%. They're not going to give you any of this other information. But as always, I like to give you everything that you ever would need to know about it. And that's what we've done here. Okay? So for the general rule for you taking an exam or preparing and learning the code, uh, this is what it says in the National Electrical Code. This is what you follow. You don't exceed the 20%. This is how you do it. Um, and it's really not that complicated. Again, the only difference in a non-metallic wireway uh, is the, the more critical one, and there's some other things in there, And uh, but we're going to really just stick with the metal one here, is you really want to, to, to keep in mind that you don't, you still have that 20% requirement that you don't exceed the 20%, but you don't have the application where you, if you don't go over than 30 current current conductors that you don't have to apply the uh, adjustment factors because in a non-metallic you do regardless. So all of the requirements of 31015 uh, B3A uh, are going to come into play. Okay, All of them are going to come into play and you just have to, to be aware of that. Okay, So anyway, that's our, it for today. That's our podcast. Uh, it went a little over an hour, uh, but hopefully you get something out of it. Uh, again, visit our websites at masterthenec.com or electrocodeacademy.com. Go to our YouTube channel. Uh, you can get to all of our social media from our website. Uh, visit our messages board. Visit our Twitter at masterthenec is our Twitter handle. Um, uh, if you want to learn about passing an exam, then I encourage you to go to our Facebook page. and We have what's called a closed group in there where you can ask any question you want in there without fear of being belittled by somebody like you get on some of those other message boards that are out there okay so anyway thanks again uh happy memorial day to all of our soldiers out there thank you god bless you for your service those that have died uh we ultimately always will be grateful for their sacrifice and the ability for us to be free i'd also have to like to say that my condolences go out there to the family of dave ballantyne who was a cmecp uh candidate review board member a good friend of mine uh, electrical instructor who passed away last week. Uh, my heart goes out to him. Uh, his, I mean, his uh, his family, his wife, his daughter, his son, uh, his his newly uh, acquired son-in-law. Um, it's it's a tough thing, uh, and my heart goes out. Um, we had great plans, me and David together. Um, a great guy, um, and he would be sorely missed. Uh, so. Uh, again, happy Memorial Day to everybody. Uh, think a veteran if you get a chance. Their ultimate sacrifice is what made you free. Uh, so until next time, stay safe, folks, and God bless.